tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and as an incredibly special Thanksgiving treat, today I am talking to Academy Award winner Craig Barron, who not only worked on Empire and Jedi, but has been a visual effects pioneer for decades, beginning with his start at ILM as an 18-year-old. From portraying Darth Vader to working with David Fincher, we go through as much of his incredible filmography as possible. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 53, Craig Barrett. Today on Talking Bay 94, we have Oscar-winning visual effects supervisor Matt Painter on Empire, Jedi, Raiders, E.T., and so many more. Uh, In addition to being a film scholar, visual effects historian, and such a huge inspiration to me and this podcast, Mr. Craig Barron, thank you so much for, for taking the time and coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I have to correct you slightly with your introduction is I don't consider myself a matte painter. Um, I did have aspirations for matte paintings and I did a little bit starting out as a uh, matte painter assistant to Ralph McQuarrie, but uh, I ended up going into the camera work and quite frankly, I was working with painters that were so much more advanced than <laughs> I was that uh, it, it was I was a helper in the, certainly in the very early days uh, on Empire Strikes Back, I would prepare canvases and sort of block things out sometimes. Uh, it was really Ralph McQuarrie, Mike Pingrazio, and uh, Harrison Ellenshaw that did those amazing paintings. Well, before we even dive into your time, you know, working at ILM, especially in those early years, what were your first inspirations? What made you even want to consider jumping into a visual effects career? Well, I was a big fan of Ray Harryhausen. Um, at the time, I was sort of in with a group of you know fans that watched the Harryhausen movies who would come out every couple of years, and then we would sort of emulate that in our garage. And you know, I had done some stop motion puppets and did some very rudimentary compositing in camera compositing combining them with myself and my friends uh, fighting fighting dinosaurs and monsters and things like that when i uh, heard about lucas moving ilm up to uh, san rafael it, it originally had been in van nuys california where he did star wars uh, I was able to have a little reel of films I could show mm-hmm. that I had a basic understanding of the techniques, certainly not on the levels of what they were doing, but they could see that they could hire me and train me for the position. Uh, because believe it or not, it was actually hard to get people uh, to um, work there because most of the uh, cameramen and assistants working in Los Angeles had their contacts in Los Angeles and didn't want to move up to the Bay Area. The idea that there would be this sort of you know ongoing uh, industry that would be created outside of Hollywood was was very unusual. The concept was not necessarily a sure thing. So uh, it was actually hard for them to get people to relocate and their families to to Marin. So I was uh, and uh, of course very excited to uh, to work at ILM. So you I guess saw the original Star Wars was that kind of the inspiration for you to reach out to Industrial Light and Magic or what was that first time seeing Star Wars like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I saw the uh, first I believe screening of Star Wars at the North Point uh, Theater and then later at the Coronet. I was a senior in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, you know, they say uh, you have to be careful when you let a 19-year-old decide what you want to do for the rest of your <laughs> life. So that's what happened. As I had said, I had been mostly interested in stop motion, but as it turned out, 
they didn't need anybody in uh, the stop motion department and they needed somebody in the matte painting department. So uh, I was in a hired as an assistant to Neil Krepla, who was a cameraman, and also uh, Ralph McCorry. And so uh, they needed somebody in the matte department, so that's where I went. I was going to say no. <laughs> Of course not. You were one of the youngest, if not the youngest person working at ILM at that time and kind of thrust into this new world of Empire being the sequel to one of the most successful movies of all time and working alongside one of the masters, Ralph McQuarrie and the rest of that team. What did you learn, at least in those initial days? And, and what was it like kind of being a part of that process? Yeah, uh, well, Ralph really took me under his wing and uh, we became very good friends. Uh, as And, you know, part of my job was to assist him and then also work on the camera side. He taught me a lot about uh, composition and design and about painting. And because I was uh, so close to Ralph, it, looking back on it, it was sort of a unique opportunity to kind of know a little bit more about what was going on because Ralph was sort of obviously one of the key uh, contributors to the making of the film. So we would talk a lot about visual effects, what makes a good shot, why is it you know what? What is the idea of the first reading? What is it supposed to say to you? Uh, what's the idea it's communicating to advance a narrative and a story? So we would have a lot of discussions about art, and then also I would sort of hear a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on, uh, which was quite wonderful because it, it, Ralph was uh, definitely in the mix of being one of the key creatives of those right. movies. Yeah, one hundred percent. So I mean, moving from Empire, and then of course there was Raiders before Jedi. How did you see your your role at ILM evolve as those movies went on? And, and what were you kind of picking up and working on um, through that whole process? Well, in Empire, as I said, I was an assistant, so I wasn't that involved creatively in creating shots. By Jedi, I was much more involved, you know, taking on the responsibilities of all the camera work necessary to uh, create the shot, as well as working with the artists and the design. So I had uh, much more of a contribution Although in Empire, there is kind of a, a fun story where Neil Kreppel had appendicitis toward the end of uh, production. So uh, for almost three weeks, I was sort of the person doing everything <laughs> in the department. And, and Ralph was very nice uh, to, to make sure that George knew that I was uh, doing the best I could to uh, keep the ball rolling. And uh, eventually they, they sent some help up. Uh, for me. That particular sequence uh, that we were working on at the time was the final uh, lightsaber battle in Cloud City. And uh, so uh, there's three shots there that I pretty much did all the compositing work on uh, when uh, Vader and Luke are fighting on that sort of weather vane uh, <laughs> looking thing inside the tube. We called it the weather vane. I was, we were never really quite sure what it did, but uh, it, was, uh, it was a great sort of sequence, obviously, when you find out that Luke is the son of Darth Vader and all that. What was great from the, from the compositing aspect is that, you know, you would put in the live action plate that was photographed in London and then the map painting. And then I also had to put in the lightsabers. So that was fun. So I put in, you know, Darth Vader's red lightsaber and uh, Luke's lightsaber was blue back on uh, Empire. And then, of course, when the, when the lightsabers touched each other, they had a little flash animation element as well. So there was a fair amount of work that went into creating that shot. But once it was done, if it was uh, accepted by uh, George, it went right into the film. It was done. <laughs> it was a finished shot. So that's kind of fun. Most of the departments at ILM were set up to uh, shoot different elements, like uh, an element from stage, 
an animation element, sometimes a matte painting, et cetera, and then go into the optical department for final composite. The matte department is the only other department that could actually do finished shots that could cut directly uh, into the film. So in dailies, you know, when the shot would come up, I had the opportunity to, to speak about it with, with Lucas. And, you know, that was, that was, that was a yeah. lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, attention uh, on Empire because, uh, you know, George was really putting all his money into that. And, you know, we even had uh, investors, you know, like bankers come by and visit while we were making the film. So we really had to finish on time. Uh, and so there was a lot of pressure to get it done. But it was really fun to then be able to, you know, talk in dailies. And when the shot comes up, you'd say, well, we think this is working pretty well and it's matching or, or maybe this is not quite working. We'd like to try it again. And uh, you just have to kind of be like a, uh, you know, an advocate for what's on the screen. So it was a lot yeah, of fun. a lot of fun. With Jedi, how did your roles and responsibilities change and, and evolve? What were you able to accomplish there that you're the most proud of looking back? Well, um, I did a lot, you know, Neil and I would divide up the shots and um, depending and then work with the artists separately. Now, on Empire, we had Harrison and Ralph and then Mike D'Ingrazio was doing the painted backings for the Walker sequence. And by this point, by Jedi, he was now in the matte department doing matte paintings. So uh, I was working with him quite closely on several shots. And also Chris Evans we had and uh, Frank Ordaz. So we had a much bigger department back then. And then so Ralph McCory decided that he didn't want to do the matte paintings anymore um, and felt that the, you know, the artist there could get the job done. So uh, Ralph didn't do the paintings on uh, Jedi, which I was sad because I just love working with Ralph but I could you know completely understand it it's uh it's not easy <laughs> doing those paintings right. you know they were uh you know uh, on glass two and a half by six feet and required a lot of detail so on Jedi uh, I think one of the sequences I'm most happy with is a shot I did with uh, Chris Evans of the Ewok uh, village up in the trees of course and what would happen sometimes is of course there were plays that were shot in London which I wasn't involved with they were shot you know, in London, given to us. But as George would cut the picture together, he quite often would add shots to sort of fill out a sequence. And so that was always fun because then we could design the shot from scratch uh, based on what he needed. And then we would have to shoot everything required to go into that into that shot. So in the case of the Ewoks Village, um, there was a shot of the Ewoks at the end of the film where they're dancing around campfires. And it, it turns out that, that the suits that the Ewoks wear are actually highly flammable. And so we we couldn't have, we couldn't actually have the Ewoks dance anywhere near open flame. So we would shoot this in, in a series of layers. So we would first shoot a blue screen element of the Ewoks dancing, and then I would uh, I would shoot that on stage, and then also shoot fire elements, bonfire elements, and then those would get pre-composited into. Uh, a rear projection plate that could then be added to the map painting. So uh, I was happy with how that how that sequence worked out, and it was fun to do. I guess I have a, a technical question, which would be, you know, you're compositing all these shots, and especially for effects-heavy work, whether it's Star Wars or any other similar production, there has to be so many elements, not just people in, in suits and, and fire elements, but also miniatures and special effects. And we just mentioned lightsabers. <laughs> what really made the most successful shots for you? I've been reading that you did a lot of location-based shooting as well to figure out the best mats that you could identify, but what was kind of important to you in putting that composition process together? 
Well, it, in Jedi, what we also had the advantages uh, of that we didn't have an empire was uh, was called the mat camera system we had called the automat. And it was like a big uh, multiplane camera, uh, similar to the Disney animation right. camera, but it was built on its side uh, down a 20-foot track uh, so that we could do multiplanes of the paintings and add you know, more dynamic camera movement. But because the paintings are ultimately 2D art, they don't move in perspective. So Jedi had the first examples of combining miniatures with the matte paintings, and uh, Neil Kreplow worked on a shot with Mike Grazio uh, when Vader's shuttle comes into land uh, on the Death Star, there's a whole, there's a miniature foreground that's moving in perspective as you're following the shuttle. So we sort of realized that a really powerful amalgam of techniques was to take matte paintings and then combine them with miniatures uh, using the automat motion control system to kind of create a much more uh, compelling and realistic looking uh, shot. So uh, we, we would then explore that much more uh, after Jedi with, uh, with that technique. This is a this is a slight aside, and this this is your opportunity to correct the record one way or another. But you know, doing the research for this interview, one of the things that popped up in addition to all of your work, it just one sentence that just said also was a stand-in for Dave Prowse on Jedi. What was that? Was that a situation similar to this in, in composition that you just needed to fill a shot? Or one of the real fun things about working in the mat department is that, uh, and this is why George liked. He liked matte paintings. He would come up and hang out in the matte department and watch the artist paint. He he just liked using them, but he could add a shot. So it's like you could just come up, create something that was very effective without you know having to build the sets, and you just build a, a small set to back up the live action, and the rest could be painted. So um, there was an additional shot that he wanted on Jedi uh, when Darth Vader leaves uh, the shuttle, we we rebuilt a little ramp on the stage, and um, I was uh, six feet tall, so I could sort of fit into the Darth Vader costume. But I looked more like a uh, big helmet, you know, from uh, from <laughs> baseball. <laughs> but yeah. nobody seemed to seemed to notice. Um, I did trip one time, uh, you know, I, I <laughs> slid down the ramp to enormous laughter in dailies, of course, because I slipped right. on the cape because it was too right. long. I wish I had those outtakes. That would be like hysterically funny. Be great, uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I do have the uh, distinction of being Darth Vader in one shot. Um, That's great. And that was a beautiful Mike Negrosio map painting. And again, it just sort of shows you, you know, the the value of having a map department available to you when you're making a movie because you can uh, fill out sequences and add different shots very quickly um, because you have those people available to you. How did matte paintings and then compositions for these kind of larger scale shots evolve over time like after jedi then you stayed at ilm all the way up to to willow which really did usher in this digital era with with some of those shots what was it like seeing that evolution kind of transform and really make sure that the the composition and how the shots look were consistent and and growing with the technology willow sort of represents i think sort of everything that we've learned in the matte department sort of shows up in Willow. I think the castles that we did in Willow were very effective and the camera movement and, you know, we were sort of combining miniatures with paintings and things. So so those initial ideas that I had mentioned, you know, learning how to make great shots on Jedi with uh, miniatures and paintings were was fulfilled by the time we got to Willow. And that was actually the last film that 
department worked on as a group, because after Willow, we sort of went off our different ways. Mike Begrazio and I left ILM to form our own company, uh, Matt World. Um, and so we ended up leaving after that particular film, and Chris Evans went off to do something else. So it was another group of people that came in after, after we left. But I think Willow sort of represents the high point of the traditional matte painting department of how we wanted to approach shots. So again, some of the things that we're doing in Empire and Jedi, we're doing matte shots that maybe it's it's not the best uh, use of a matte painting, like super technical paintings of uh, the Death Star and things like that. That maybe should be a miniature, uh, but a lot of times we were, we were doing things because it was expedient to do it as a matte shot or there wasn't a budget to build a miniature or the Millennium Falcon was just not available you know, to use as a cutaway in the hangar, so it had to be a painting. So a lot of times we were doing shots based on what was needed to get the film done um, more than what was exactly the right technique for for a matte shot. So that would that that would come later when the pressure was off and um, you know <laughs> Lucas was established and uh, we didn't have didn't have the issue of uh, of um, getting the film done at a certain time or somebody would lose the rights or there would be some issue with the release so uh, so there were other considerations. Well, moving on to Matt World and the work that you did then for almost twenty five years of of really then shaping like we were just talking about this now digital evolution of the matte painting and of compositing. What were some of the projects that really stand out to you in terms of both the innovations that you were accomplishing over there, but then also some of the biggest challenges you might have been facing, whether it was Casino or Benjamin Button or anything in between? Well, yeah, Casino was um, kind of a big deal for us because um, we had adapted this uh, rendering technology based on global illumination. This kind of gets a little bit technical, but uh, (laughs) uh, the computer, the way the computer simulates an environment is uh, through various ways of mimicking nature. You know, there's ray tracing, which is direct illumination of objects, and then there's uh, indirect illumination or radiosity techniques. And so we, I read this uh, article in Scientific American that was doing a deep dive on how to mimic reality inside of computer graphics, and we sort of uh, started to adapt some of these concepts, which were sort of, you know, in, in the theoretical side, and we could sort of see that there were people doing research at universities that were starting to make um, software for architectural rendering meaning that if you were an architect and you wanted to see a visualization of what your building would look like, it would have to be photometrically accurate for it to be worthwhile, right? So a a thousand watt light bulb would have to uh, propagate a thousand watts of light in that environment accurately and realistically. So this is the type of stuff that you want if you're working in film because you're trying to match things that are on the set that are photographed with real lights in the real world. So we ended up using a brand of architectural rendering software called Lightscape and adapting it to film. And uh, this was the first time we did this for Casino for creating the establishing shot of the Tangiers Hotel uh, in the film. And so uh, it was uh, it was pretty fun to do it because it was it was the first time we did something so radically different using the computer. You know, like traditionally you might have built miniatures with uh, neon lights to make the marquees and the billboards, but this was all done by uh, computer graphics and it, it looked really well. We were quite yeah. proud of it. We took we took it over to ILM and we screened it over there for everybody and we just sort of <laughs> 
just kept watching it over and over again. <laughs> you yeah. were kind of amazed <laughs> by it. Yeah. Um, but clearly, you know, the gift of computer graphics to what was 2D map painting uh, was that you could dimensionally move the camera in, in the environment. So that's, uh, that's why it was effective. Um, and then you mentioned Benjamin Button, which uh, we, we did a lot of the, obviously, the a lot of the environments for that. And also uh, Zodiac, right before that, we did two back-to-back films with David Fincher. And of course, David Fincher worked with us on Return of the Jedi as well. Right. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> and was in the map painting department after he was uh, through uh, in the animation department. Uh-huh. He came over and wor- worked with me in the map painting department for many years, and we uh, had a good friendship. And uh, it was very fun to work on his movie because obviously uh, we had a shorthand, and it, it was just a very positive, uh, creative relationship that we had two back-to-back movies, both uh, Zodiac and uh, Benjamin Button. And then, of course, Benjamin Button, um, he won the Oscar for <laughs> burying the lead a little bit, but yes, incredible work yeah. on, on both of those. There's always a few things that always pop up. People pointing out the matte paintings in Star Wars, and everyone's like, wow, I couldn't believe it. And the second is always, people don't really see it for the first time, the incredible effects work that went into Zodiac, because it's almost seamless, that environment that was created for that movie. So really, really incredible stuff. Yeah, we really, there was a shot we really liked, which was the... Uh, Transamerica pyramid time lapse shot, and you know most films would say one year later, you know, with a card, <laughs> right. but but in this particular case, we 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 did a time lapse sequence of the construction of the uh, pyramid building in San Francisco, the Transamerica building, and so we showed it being constructed over several days, and the time of day changes from night to day, and fog comes in and goes out. It was, it was a lot of fun to do that. It worked worked really well in the film. Moving from your work behind the camera and in visual effects, one of the things that I, I've really been drawn to, especially the work that you're now putting out on the opposite end, which would be the historian side of you and what you're really doing to preserve a lot of the history of the visual effects, both you know before digital and, and after, what was that impetus for you, and why did you want to kind of start preserving all of these stories and information? Well, it, it, it really goes way back to working on Empire Strikes Back, because uh, I really didn't know much about the history of map painting. And, um, you know, Harrison uh, Ellenshaw, of course, is um, Peter Ellenshaw's son, mm-hmm. and Peter Ellenshaw's gra- grandfather was Percy Day. So there's there's three generations of famous map painters that are in that that family and so you know being new to it i would i would ask harrison tons of questions about uh, map painting history and where did it come from and why do you want to do certain things a certain way versus another way and i probably drove him crazy because every once in a while he you know look at me and say you know why are you writing a book and and then the joke the joke was I eventually did write a book right. uh, called the the Invisible Art Legends right. of Movie Map Painting and then I gave him the book and said yes I'm writing the book <laughs> you know <laughs> but of course that was many years later but right. I always had that sort of fascination with the history of the craft because it, there wasn't a lot known about it you know none of it was really written down there were only sort of stories that people would tell each other and of course um you know i think that as part as an artist you know to to sort of feel like your craft your chosen profession is an art form you have to sort of categorize it you know you have to you have to document and understand where it came from to know you know hopefully where you're taking it uh if you take it further you have to know where it was uh so 
I always thought it was important to have a sense of history. And quite frankly, you you learn. You learn from people that created amazing work. In some cases, undetectable illusions. You can start to discuss, well, why why is that effective and why is this not? And you have a rich history to draw from as your teacher. So there was one thing that we always did in the in the ILM math department, which we continued in my own company, is that um, we had a, an esprit de corps. We would sort of sit and look at our shots as a group, and we would discuss them. You know, uh, Disney has this term called sweat box sessions, where you would get in with the animators and they would say, what's good about this? What's not working? And it wasn't about ego. It wasn't about being possessive of something you did. It was like, how do we make this better? Is this working? And so that sort of uh, attitude is how you grow and how you get better at what you do. We always, as a group, would would stay and look at our work and discuss it as part of our process. And I think ultimately that that uh, allows you to to be successful in your in your chosen profession, regardless of what you're doing. And, and I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but not only you know are you collecting this history and and this important fact finding of of these uh, innovations and these artists, but then you're also using that information to then educate. And you and Ben Burt are both very active, and not only let's say the academy or TCM or Criterion or whatever you're doing then to spread that knowledge. What to you is important there? And what's what do you think like the next generation of, let's say, these visual effects artists, what do you think is important for them to, to notice from pre-digital um, artistry that was going on in movies? Well, the, the, the tools have changed, obviously. Right. You know, we're not, we're not painting on glass anymore and compositing. And, and there's a lot of uh, innovations. The digital age has made things so much easier like matching colors like when we used to test uh live action to the painting we would do these color wedges on the live action that would require several tests that would have to go to the lab and you would have something that looked pretty good but it was a little bit magenta you know so you <laughs> had to put a little cyan in there and it was too green and then you know too yellow so more blue and then eventually you sort of hit on uh, the perfect match, but it was all based on sort of a little bit of luck and serendipity. Now you can select uh, uh, an area and say match this color on the computer, and it, it, <laughs> it's 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 done instantaneously. So obviously, there's a lot of a lot of um, you know sort of the drudgery has been taken out of it, um, but the the concepts behind it are still the same. You know, what makes a good shot? Um, every shot is supposed to say something that advances the narrative of the film. And if it doesn't say that, it shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be there. That's why we're, we're doing a shot. Right. So um, how to communicate that to an audience in the most effective way possible is sort of, is sort of what your job is. And, and you can learn how to do that by seeing the work of the people that, that came before you. So as I said, as a tool set has changed, but the, sort of the idea of storytelling and movie making is, is still the same and, and you can draw inspiration from the past. I keep just checking all the time. When will the the Burt Baron Roadshow come to Texas? But we'll 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 cross our fingers one day. Yeah. All right. Well, so thank you for that. It's a little esoteric sometimes, but uh, we it's it's fun because it's a way to kind of it's our just it's really our interest. It's sort of like right. you know we're curious how things were done, and we sort of think about it, and then um, 
unfortunately, there's a few people in the audience that think it might be interesting, too. So. <laughs> I love it. I actually flew out. There was the Academy event in July with, mm-hmm. you know, Marsha and Joy. And I flew out from Texas for one day just to, I, I, I went and then I, I, I told it right back because I was like, I can't miss this. Very, very, very cool. That was a lot of a lot of fun, and the um, George was kind enough to donate the Dijkstraflex yeah. uh, to the uh, Science and Technology Council, and uh, we restored it and had it on display in the lobby for that uh, presentation. And it was really great to see the Dijkstraflex go up and down the track again. It was great because I was there, and you know, I got to you know meet a few people that I, I've idolized for a long time. But then I walked out <laughs> into the lobby and I saw the Dijkstraflex, and I was almost more starstruck by that than anybody that was that was in there it was uh, it was really incredible well it was it's fun it's uh, nostalgic and then you get to preserve history a little bit so uh, it's it's a good feeling well mr. Barron thank you for all you're doing to preserve um, history especially of, of visual effects and, and the education that you're doing now and I really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking to me this it means a lot yeah, it's a, a pleasure. And, you know, I, I've listened to some of the other podcasts and you've got, you know, great people on there like Phil Tippett and Richard Edlin and Harrison Ellenshaw. So you're obviously doing a, a great job getting a good group of interesting people on your podcast. And now we have Craig Barron. So what else What else can I really ask <laughs> well, for? <laughs> well, thank you. That's very flattering. <laughs> but thank you for asking and looking forward to listening to uh, what we've done. So thanks again. Thank you again to Mr. Barron for coming on the show and letting me fanboy out just a little bit about his incredible contributions to both film and film history. If you're listening to this episode when it's just released, we are going to be dropping the next round of Talk Bay 94 merch pre-orders right after Thanksgiving. So wear your fandom for George Lucas, Ryan Johnson, and or Kathleen Candy on your chest with these credits-inspired shirts. The link is in the bio, and all proceeds go right back into supporting this show. Until next time, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, happy Thanksgiving, and may the Force be with you.